It is Wednesday, July 30th, 2014, recording now in Riverdale in my grandmother's home where I'm currently staying, uh, having pretty much vacated my apartment in the Lower East Side, so I'll have a few things to give away, um, but we'll be fully, fully cleared out um, just certainly by the day because that's when the lease is up, and I'll be staying here in Riverdale until... I make Aliyah on a Nefesh Benefesh charter flight on August 11th. And one of the questions that comes up when I tell people, especially non-Jewish friends, that, oh, yeah, I'm moving. Where are you moving to? Moving to Israel. Uh, for those who might be listening to this podcast several years from now, uh, right now there's a great deal of fighting going on in Israel. Um, you could say, well, Hasn't that always been true? Well, no. There have been you know, moments of, say, tension, followed by moments of actual military intervention. I'm not going to go through the entire recent history of it. That's why you have Google. Uh, but it is kind of the reason why I want to give this particular class something that comes up a lot uh, when I see in the rabbinate, uh, not just among congregants, amongst uh, a lot of editorials, uh, op-eds, uh, people on social media now, uh, is that people like really simplifying Judaism. Uh, to say Judaism believes X, Judaism believes Y, something is what, you know, th this is representative of Judaism, or something else is very much not representative of Judaism. Uh, I had a discussion with someone on Facebook about this point where he had written an op-ed that said something along the lines that revenge is un-Jewish. Uh, turns out he didn't actually say that. The editor uh, said that when he posted the op-ed. Sometimes uh, editors of a site will change the title. Um, and the actual article itself, I thought, had very defensible positions, uh, mostly based on uh, the thought of Rabbi Yehuda Amital, which is certainly uh, valid for a discussion uh, in terms of uh, morality in times of war and all that. Uh, but to say that vengeance is un-Jewish is something that really contradicts the Torah itself. You have calls for pretty much vengeance against Amalek, um, the nation that attacked the Jewish people as they left Egypt. You have an explicit call uh, for taking revenge against Midian. So regardless of how those ideas should or should not be applied to a current situation, well, you can't say in sweeping terms this is what Judaism believes or doesn't believe. Uh, there was someone else uh, who had an op-ed that referred to certain teachings in Amos that seemed to push more for peace. Um, and I reminded, well, the same God that talks about peace in certain contexts also told King Saul to wipe out the nation of Amalek, including children. So this is a very complicated um how to put this? This is a really complicated type of practical theology is a good way of putting it. We as Jews will often look to the Bible um, or to rabbinic texts or to whomever to try to figure out, well, what is it that God wants of us? The trouble is that you're going to find seemingly contradictory and conflicting sources within the Torah that could lead you to contradictory or conflicting policies. And you can, you know, 
uh, try to smooth out all the contradictions by saying, well, this was this situation, this was that situation. But you have to demonstrate why is this analogy similar to something else. Uh, so regarding Amalek, which was, again, nature has become an archetype as being the quintessential enemies of the Jews, it's really not that difficult for a religious figure to plug in the enemy of the Jews today or the perceived enemy, enemy of the Jews today, call them Amalek, and boom, instant justification for any sort of actions that come out in defense of wiping out this nation. That happens. Same thing on the peace side of things. It gets very tricky. It's also why I've taken great pains to avoid doing that. Uh, what I've done, at least in my tenure in shul, is less about trying to show here's what God wants us to do now as much as demonstrate that the actual sources are going to be very complicated and they may not express the universalist morality and the absolute morality, the very simple Judaism is X mentality that many people really want Judaism to be. Uh, I've also explained that, you know, it's my job to try to figure out uh, what God wants, but not to speak on his behalf. So today I want to address a question uh, that I've seen posted online in many different contexts because uh, it's just something which it's a sentiment which you can understand many people want to really adhere to and get behind. Um, you'll find this particularly more amongst people on the left who, you know, all we were saying is give peace a chance and all that. And people will use language like, according to Judaism, all lives are e of equal value. And everyone's the same, and we cannot do some moral calculus of someone's life is worth more or less than someone else's. Okay, it's a very nice idea, but is that position actually defensible with the read of the Jewish sources? And the answer I'm going to give is no, uh, though we will see some conflicting sides, or at least try to give more nuance. But the answer to that question is really a whole lot more complicated than just saying, here's what Judaism believes. And I'm going to stress now, um, uh, probably we'll do it later on too, what I'm about to say might have been inspired by the current fighting in Israel, but it is by no means a commentary on it. I'm not going to even begin to get into what the Israeli army should or should not do, the morality or ethics of wars, none of that. Um, I think those are wonderful discussions to have, might be subjects for, I don't know, other classes if I could actually put together a whole thing on halachot of Jewish warfare. But right now I just want to deal with the more general theoretical premise of all lives being of equal worth and equal value according to the Torah. And like when I usually do these classes, uh, there's a heavy bias on biblical and rabbinic texts. Um, again, for the usual reasons that these are undeniably part of Jewish canon, whereas when you quote other rabbis from later periods, it's much easier to say, you know, like Big Lebowski, yeah, well, that's just your opinion, man. It's much harder to dismiss as being non-canonical, biblical, or rabbinic verses or statements. So let's get right to it. Um, the first source in terms of valuing lives, is from Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, chapter 27, verses 2 through 8. And here, the context is, when you're going to make a vow, assuming you make a vow, 
that says, I'm going to give to the Lord, I'm going to give to God the monetary value uh, of a person's life. Uh, special vow dedicated to the equivalent value of a particular individual. And here, in these verses, the Torah actually puts a monetary value to that statement. Um, the value of a male between 20 and 60 is at 50 shekels of silver. According to, uh, for a woman, it's 30 shekels between 5 and 20. Uh, it's 20 shekels for women. It's 10. A uh, person want between one month and five years. It's at five shekel. And for women, it's for three shekels. Um, that we don't need to get into exactly what a shekel is, but here you actually have the value of a life set at a very different monetary standard. If all lives were equal, well, then it should be the same across the board. You wouldn't start measuring out, well, Here's what you're worth at this age. Here's what you're worth at that age. Uh, certainly would not have really a consistent uh, price difference between, or I shouldn't say consistent price difference, but you would not have men being worth more than women at pretty much every stage of their life. Uh, commentators will you know, try to read this of how do you even put a number value on it. And the answer, the least the common answer you're going to find is that it's not that here's what your value actually is on an existential human level. But rather, this is what you'd be worth on the labor market. Um, still, we can argue, you know, even if you want to justify that, you're still setting the assessment of a valued life different based on how much you can contribute to society. I'm going to leave the discussions of Arachin on a whole other area. But again, it's kind of hard to justify that everyone is going to be equal when you actually have monetary differences that are very clear and very explicit. Uh when it comes to saving lives, right, moving away from, you know, just putting a number value, if all lives are equal, then you might assume that if you're in a position to save one life when there are two people who are drowning, that you shouldn't matter whom you take or who you take. Oh, sorry, it's a little early right now, so I'm, my grammar's a little off. Um, you might not know which one you shouldn't even care about which one you should take. You just take whomever you can save and that's it. There's a mission in Horayot 3.7 that says a man takes precedence over a woman in matters concerning the saving of a life and the restoration of lost property and a woman takes precedence over a man in respect to clothing and ransom from captivity. When both are explored, exposed excuse me, to a moral degradation in their captivity, the man's ransom takes precedence over that of the woman. Now, again, this is a mission in Horayot, not asking whether or not people are going to agree or disagree with the sentiment, but it's there. Assuming all lives are going to be treated equal in Jewish law or Jewish theology, you would never even have this sort of calculus. You save the person you can, and that's it. Here, we're being told, you save the life of a man over the life of a woman. One common answer I've heard to try to explain this is that it comes down to mitzvot, to commandments, that since men have more spiritual commandments, uh, more commandments than women, there's greater spiritual potential, and that's what you're really trying to save. Perhaps that, that's an answer. I would consider that approach more along the lines of apologetics, simply because you still take precedence over men versus women if there's a case of, say, a risk of both of them being raped in captivity. 
you would still save the man before you would save the woman. That has nothing to do with spiritual potential down the line or someone fulfilling more commandments, doing more mitzvot later on in life. Here, there is a precedent of placing in some way the value of a man over the value of a woman, at least when it pertains to saving their respective lives. Another way that you might argue, and this gets a little bit tricky in terms of uh, girsa issues where you've got variance of a given text is the value of a Jew uh, versus the value over non-Jews. To give an example for this, you have a Mishnah in Sanhedrin uh, 4.5, which states, uh, goes through, uh, if you're going to be a witness in a capital case, meaning it's going to be on your testimony that so-and-so might be executed, the witnesses are actually intimidated in a way. The language of the Mishnah is How do you intimidate or put fear in the witnesses? Because if someone's going to die based on your testimony, you really should take that testimony pretty seriously because you're going to be the cause for someone's death. And in this Mishnah, we're told that that therefore man was consi- uh, con- uh, created alone as one individual. That if you destroy, you kill one person from Israel, the it is assumed upon you or stricture imposes the guilt according to the official translation I have in front of me as if you destroyed a complete world. Similarly, if you preserve or you save, then scripture ascribes to you as if you saved an entire world. Again, the language being, if the entire world today is really the result of being descendants from Adam, Adam Harishon, the first man, then when you extrapolate uh, population growth, saving the life of any one person is as if You've saved the life of all the subsequent generations. Now, if anyone's seen Schindler's List, you might remember that quote as being part of the movie. Uh, according to the Mishnah, at least as it's written in the Babylonian Talmud, the operative word here is nefeshachat me'yisrael, saving the life of one person, not just one person though, but the life of one soul from the Jewish people. In the Jerusalem Talmud's version, the language is ham abe nefesh achat, that if you destroy one life, and kol chol hamakayim nefesh achat, whoever preserves a single person without that qualification of that person being Jewish or not. Uh, like I said, this is a girsa problem. I don't say girsa problem, but you have various girsot, so you could probably read this in different ways. Uh, according to one, there's something specific about the Jewish life that would perpetuate an entire world, almost to the exclusion of non-Jews. But based on the rationale, there's no reason why it shouldn't apply to non-Jews either. Uh, you might even give another analogy to the area of Jewish law regarding the laws of Shabbat, uh, the uh, laws of Sabbath, where according to Jewish law, you are mechalel Shabbat. You're allowed, uh, I shouldn't say allowed, you're supposed to desecrate the Sabbath to save the life of a Jew, but you don't desecrate the Sabbath to save the life of a non-Jew. Now, normally when we talk about things of pikuach nefesh, you're doing it to save a life, 
that idiom, at least in Jewish law, does not have a qualification of pikuach nefesh yehudi or pikuach nefesh misrael. It's not talking. It does not mention in that idiom that you're specifically saving the life of a Jew. It's you're saving a life. But when it comes to the details of halacha, that too is not an absolute. Uh, there's a great deal written on that other set of halachot about saving, uh, about being mechal Shabbat to save the life of a Jew versus non-Jew. A great deal is written about that, but you might want to throw this in here too as a way of perhaps putting in some different, um, uh, as putting as part of your thought, thought process about does Judaism take all lives equally at face value. It's important to put in as a classification here is that there are differences, I don't say differences, opinion as much as different perspectives, depending on the scenario. In the above cases that we've mentioned, we had one about uh, taking a particular vow. Another is you're trying to ensure that witnesses really have the fear of God in them, less, you know, assuming that uh, to ensure that the testimony they give is accurate and they don't inadvertently cause someone to be killed. Um, that's very different than actively taking someone else's life. Um, and that's kind of uh, the, what we're going to discuss about in this next section here of when you're really putting when you're dealing with situations when there is a life for a life. What would the calculus be? I mean, when you're talking about saving someone's life, two people are drowning. You happen to save one over the other. OK, but you weren't responsible, at least hopefully you weren't responsible for putting them at risk. But also, we're assuming, at least in those cases, that you're saving someone else's life comes at no risk to you. What happens if it comes down to a case of your life versus someone else's life? What happens then? So first example is we have the Torah uh, in Exodus Shemot 22, verses 1 through 2, has the law of what is known in Jewish law as Baba Machteret, someone who is caught breaking in through a tunnel at night. I understand the parallels that people want to make today with Hamas's tunnels, resist that temptation. Um, according to this piece of Jewish law, if someone breaks into your house at night, and you don't know whether or not the person is going to kill you or just wants to rob you, you can shoot first and ask questions later. Once the sun comes up, right? if it happens after sunrise, then damim, uh, sorry, then damim lo. If you kill the person, you're responsible for it. And idiomatically it means when it becomes clear that the person is only trying to rob you and isn't trying to murder you, you're not allowed to just shoot the person. If anyone remembers uh, Bernard Goetz, vigilante in New York in the 80s, uh, who was mugged on the subway and he shot his assailants, he was found not guilty. And uh, he was found not guilty, I'm sorry, of criminal liability. But there was, I believe, a $43 million judgment against him. And one of the things that came up was, I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, is that someone was shot in the back. Now, if someone's shot in the back, they're usually running away from you. I mean, yes, it's possible that they turn their back on you and you've got yourself a moment, but you're shooting them in the back as they're running away. At that moment, your life is not in jeopardy. So here, too, as long as your life is in actual jeopardy, and you, or at least reasonably suspect that your life is in jeopardy, you're allowed to take someone out. 
But once it becomes clear that your life isn't in jeopardy, no. Judaism does not have these regular... um, I just said regular. That's how much it's engraved. But Judaism does not have the Floridian stand your ground laws. Not how it operates here. So taking those in, I guess, let's split in, splitting up those two moments here. If you think that your life is in jeopardy, you're allowed to value your life ahead of someone else's. And the assumption is that when someone attacks you, or at least if someone breaks into your house at night, they're kind of taking their lives into their own hands, almost to the extent of forfeiting their right to life. Because they're going to assume that if someone you know, thinks that they're breaking in to kill them, that they're in fact going to die. And by them taking this risk, they're sort of giving it up. Anyway, one set of Jewish laws. Another one that is really fascinating that I didn't really think about until I started putting this together is the laws of a rodef. Uh, what Rodef means is chasing. And according to the language of the Mishnah in Sanhedrin 8.7, Elu uh, Matzilin Otan Benafshan, these are people who must be saved even at the cost of their lives. And the first example is, Harodef Achar Chavero Laharago. If you're running after, you're pursuing, chasing after someone in order to kill them, we are allowed to kill you but why? And here, between this Mishnah and the uh, corresponding Gemara passage in the Babylonian Talmud, which is Sanhedrin 73a, you actually have two trains of thought here. One approach is the obvious, and this comes towards the latter part of the Sugya, latter part of the section, that the reason why you kill someone who's about to kill someone else is your intent is to save that person's life. Sounds weird, but you're saving the potential victims' lives at the cost, at the expense of the life of the person who's trying to take that away. That certainly exists towards the end. However, the language of the Mishnah seems to phrase it a little bit differently. That why do we kill this person? Why do we kill the Rodef? Not so much that we're doing it to save the life of his potential victim, but we're doing it to save the spiritual life of the uh, near murderer, meaning if I kill someone, right, well, that's going to look really bad on my spiritual, I don't know, those spiritual scales, right? Go up to heaven, get judged, was he a righteous person, wicked person? What did this guy do? Oh, he killed someone. Yeah, that's that's not going to look too good on my ledger. But we're allowed, according to this mission, the, the way the language is phrased, we are allowed to kill someone who is about to kill someone else, lest they come to ruin their own spiritual ledger. That's the word I was looking for, right? Uh, and the mission even concludes that if uh, you're, um, uh, you know, it, it's not even an absolute, uh, such that if someone is running after a woman to rape her, then you're still allowed to kill her. But if it's a, uh, not kill her, I'm sorry. Uh, you don't kill the victim. You kill him. But if he's running after Harodevach or Behema, if he's running to do bestiality or to violate the Sabbath or to worship idolatry, you don't kill him with his own soul. You don't save his spiritual ledger by killing him. Now, the obvious difference here is that uh, early, I didn't say here, the obvious difference between these instances is when you're talking about potentially murdering someone 
or potentially raping an individual, these are sins that come at the expense of another human life. Uh, bestiality, well, it comes at the expense of an animal life, I suppose, but not a human life. Uh, Sabbath observant, doing idolatry, doesn't come at the expense of a human life, so then we don't save you. Uh, or at least it's weird. We don't save you basically from yourself. These are two components here. Um, and I think that distinction uh, is important to realize that you really have both components here. One is we're trying to prevent a victim. And at the same time, we're also trying to prevent you from ruining your own spiritual life. But at the end of the day, the point for this conversation here is that once you're running after someone to kill them, well, why don't you just let that person die? Right? Why do you have to save a life by killing a life? Or taking a life, I should say. How do you save a life by taking another life? And the answer is, well, we do. Um, and we can deal with the morality stuff like that too. But if every life was very simply equal and very nice universalistic ideal, lives are equal, then we would not be able to save one life at the expense of another. That would be immoral because... I don't know, if they're both equal, well, let one person die. Right? Again, we're assuming that the only way you could save someone's life is through um, uh, lethal force. Uh, if there's a way to take him out without using lethal force, fine. But according to here, if someone's running after someone to kill them, lethal force is approved. And if every life is always uniformly valuable, you would not be able to make that statement. Um, let's say you yourself are stuck in a situation. This is Gemara above Mathias 62a. Two people are traveling in the desert. There's enough water for one of them. And let's say one person happens to have the water jug. Does that person have an obligation to share? So one person, Ben Patura, says yes. Mutav mutu. Better, both people drink and both people die. And a person should not see the death of his friend. Rabbi Akiva came and said no. That your life takes precedent over the life of your friend. Now, you could argue that this is very logical. Um, but again, if we're going to assume that one person's life is or should not be greater taken seriously than the others... Um, Again, you would not be able to make this statement at all. And we'll actually see a source later on where that doesn't always work. Here, however, we're not talking about a case where uh, you're an active murderer, where you're actually trying to kill someone, uh, but rather this is a circumstance. And to what extent do you go out of your way to save someone else? What happens if it's an either-or situation, right? So here we've had an either-or situation where you could either save yourself or someone else dies. But what happens when you're asked to be put in, uh, what happens when you now start becoming actively complicit in the death of someone else? So there's a Mishnah in Tamuro 8.12 that says that if you have a group of women who are told by non-Jews, give us one of you to be raped, otherwise we will rape all of you. They should allow, uh, they should all allow themselves to be raped. Rather than giving over one of them for uh, one of the Jewish people to them, uh, people here might be familiar with the Yerushalmi in Tamuro that kind of discusses this topic, where it says 
um, it is taught in a Tanitic statement that a group of men who were journeying on the road were met by Gentiles who said, give us one of your number that we may kill him. And if not, lo, we will kill all of you. Let them kill all of them, but let them not give over to a single is let them not give over to them a single Israelite. But if they singled one out, as they singled out uh, Sheva the son of Bichri, this is from uh, Samuel two chapter twenty. Let them give him t- uh, to them that they not all be killed. And this is also um, discussed in uh, Tosefta Terumo uh, of 720, if anyone wants to see a parallel. Roshon Beishlakish adds that this is the case if he was already subject to the death penalty, and Rav Yochanan says this is the case even if he was not already subject to the death penalty. One step at a time here. So here we're dealing with an odd situation where someone says, give us everyone to you, or give us someone, or give us a specific person. If they say someone indiscriminately, meaning you choose, you are not allowed to make that decision. If they, the people who are about to, excuse me, the people who are about to do the killing makes the decision for you, then you give up that one individual. Fascinating distinction here. Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one? Well, that depends. Who is the one? And as I understand this, the core distinction here is to what extent are you actively complicit in someone's death? In the case of two people traveling in the desert, unless you're responsible for being stuck in the desert, you're not the person killing him. If people say, we want this guy or we kill every one of you, you're not the one who singled the person out. They did. He was marked for death. However, in the other instance where they say, you choose, well then you are now taking on the responsibilities um, and the moral responsibilities of saying, we are deciding that this person is going to die. And that becomes more problematic. There, we'll conclude here with, or at least the final source, with a passage from Sanhedrin 74a uh, that talks about the, um, this is in the context of what are sometimes called the cardinal sins of Judaism, the Yehareg v'al Ya'avors. These are instances where you are uh, assuming someone puts a gun to your head and says, violate these commandments or violate certain commandments under certain circumstances, you are supposed to allow yourself to be killed rather than violate these commandments. One of these, Iharig al Yahors, one of these cardinal sins that you are better, or at least you're supposed to allow yourself to be killed rather than violate it, is actual murder. So here's the Gemara. One came before Rav and said to him, the governor of my town has ordered me, go kill so-and-so, if not, I will slay thee. He answered, Rava responded to that, Let him rather slay you than you should commit murder. Who knows that your blood is redder? Perhaps his blood is redder. So the Gemara and Sanhedrin 74a. Now, this last line is probably where you have a great deal of that equality sentiment of everyone's life is equal. But the context here is very different this is when you yourself are in a position to take someone else's life as opposed to not being able to save someone else. Okay? Now, this, of course, can get very tricky once you start applying this to the realm of war. And to what extent do you uh, wage wars and kill people in order to save yourself versus killing others? Um, 
that gets incredibly difficult again, whole separate other issue here. When you put all these sources together, it is my opinion that one, Judaism does not treat all lives as equal because to some extent, the value of your own life, well, aside from being determined by God, at least as it pertains to monetary value, uh, but aside from that, in terms of, you know, the right to either actively kill someone or passively allow you to die, being faced with these very tricky moral situations, if you can only save one life as opposed to another, which one do you save? Not all things are equal. And it's not just, well, we'll take anyone and it doesn't matter. That's not how it works. When it comes to taking another life, in my opinion, or at least I shouldn't say my opinion, as I'm reading these sources, which I guess is my opinion, there's a different calculus that needs to be enacted. In the case of a rodave, someone is actively trying to kill you, or, sorry, that's different source, I apologize. Baba Mahtar, if someone is actively trying to kill you and your life is in jeopardy, you're fine taking him out. If it's a matter of, you're even allowed to take some, one person's life to save someone else's life. That, though, is also, the laws of Rodev are way beyond complicated for this particular situation. Um, I recommend if uh, people, I gave a shear on uh, abortion uh, a little over a year ago, where um, if a woman is in the middle of a difficult pregnancy, once or difficult labor, and once the head comes out, you're not allowed to uh, save the mother at the expense of the child or the child at the expense of the mother, because each one is considered a rodave, is considered pursuing uh, the other in order to kill them. Now, that's a situation where one person is trying to kill someone else. Which one do you pick? Well, then it's kind of hard to take sides. In wars, two sides are usually trying to kill each other. Um, So that's an issue. Also, trying to portray classes as a road ape is also very difficult. I was in Israel in 95-96. That was my year I studied in yeshiva after high school. Um, And that was also the year that Yitzchak Rabin was assassinated. And one of the justifications that people gave for, like, why was he uh, permitted to have been assassinated was because he was a Rodef, that his political policies uh, made him a Rodef, made him a pursuer by putting Jewish lives in jeopardy. And an argument was made that, therefore, he was right to have been killed. Lots of people took issue with that, or at least after the fact. And at least in Israel at the time, there was a great deal of soul-searching about not over-exaggerating political rhetoric. At the time, you had um, Rabin sort of superimposed with Arafat. Things got very, uh, I don't want to say, well, violent, because there was that one act of violence. But the statements in the rhetoric was pretty extreme. Ravar Lichtenstein, after the assassination, gave somewhere between a four- and five-hour class on Rodef, and the first hour was even dedicated to whether or not he should even give this class on Rodef. Um, it's a whole separate set of laws, not even going to begin to get into it. The point for this particular conversation, again, is that Judaism, or at least biblical and rabbinic law, does not treat all lives as equal in a uniform case. However, this does not mean that you have permission to just go and kill other people as you see fit, even if it might mean that it could save your life. And that's also a very fascinating point. And again, for me, a distinction must be made between, excuse me, uh, allowing someone to be killed passively 
savings one person over another versus actively taking, I don't say law into your own hands, but actively taking someone's life into your own hands. Again, how this applies to war, well beyond my pay grade and certainly not the scope of this particular podcast. Uh, but it's important to think in terms of before we start throwing out universalities and these, you know, great grandiose claims about what Judaism believes or doesn't believe, we have to make sure that what we're saying is actually consistent. If you want to take a certain policy towards, um, towards Israel, be it safety, security, and politics, go ahead. If you want to say that your position is informed by certain sources, I think that's fantastic and we can have serious debates about it. Once you start framing things in universalist terms, there's an implication that God is behind your position. And unless you yourself are a prophet, you have no business making that decision. Uh, and there's even a Gemara that says, uh, since the destruction of the temple, prophecy is only given to small children and to fools. So if you're above a certain age, then pretty much you'd be considered a fool there. I understand the emotional need to try to say everyone is equal. And I know people might feel uncomfortable with any sort of text that espouses a form of personal or individual superiority. But if you want to have that personal morality, again, go right ahead, but then leave God out of it. Uh, for those who are interested in this topic, uh, I actually also highly recommend a book by Michael Sandel. He's a professor at Harvard called Justice. Uh, it is one of the two most popular classes at Harvard University, the other one being Talpin Shahar's class on happiness. Uh, I recommend everyone pick up Michael Sandel's book on justice. Uh, you might not agree with everything that's there, uh, but it's a book that might get you thinking. And I'm a very big fan of books that get people thinking. Uh, um, and I hope that this class you know, also got people thinking at least a little bit as well. You may or may not change your opinions regarding the Israeli situation, what they should or should not do and what the morality is. But at the very least, hopefully was able to present a little bit more of a range of classical Jewish sources than you otherwise might have been familiar with. Have a wonderful day.